Great. Well, thanks very much, Debbie. It's lovely to be here. And I'm sorry I've not been here for the whole weekend, but it sounds like you've had a great time. It's a bit like London buses, isn't it? You wait for a bishop to turn up, and then two turn up at once. So, uh, I'm sorry you've been rather over-bishoped, but anyway, hopefully that won't be too bad an experience for you. I do love church weekends. We always used to take out church weekends from my church in Notting Hill, which was a similar kind of size to your church, I guess. And then uh, church in Twickenham, which was a very big church. We had to travel a long way to find a place to accommodate us. In fact, uh, on one occasion, we went all the way down to South Devon for a church weekend from Twickenham, which was a, a long way. So we always had to have the best welcome team on duty at the, at the desk to, to welcome people after a long and often factious car journey and a long week. To, uh, so the Friday night, I never really enjoyed very much. But by the time we got on to Saturday, people were kind of pleased to be there. And often by the time we got to Sunday, people didn't want to leave. So, and then we got organising the next one. So, so I've loved church weekends. Uh, and as a bishop, I've um, spoken at a number of church weekends. I remember one in Leicestershire uh, with the parish of Aston and Nietzsche's when some lady decided to wash her hair at five o'clock in the morning. And when she was drying her hair, she set the fart alarm off. <laughs> so we all ended up in our pyjamas uh, and night clothes, uh, standing outside the, uh, the, the, the place... And you kind of feel you know people, really, when you've, when you've stood around with your nightclothes on. You kind of think, well, this is actually better than, you know, than several years' worth of just meeting on Sunday mornings. So, <laughs> I don't think you've had that experience so far, I gather, but, uh, but maybe next time. Well, it sounds like a great weekend, a lovely theme, going deeper, deeper in our prayer, deeper in our mission, and deeper in discipleship. And it very much sort of ties in with what we're seeking to do right across the diocese, to, to develop this uh, mission strategy, uh, seeking to grow in discipleship, to grow in numbers, and to grow in our engagement, our mission engagement with the world around. And, and discipleship is so important, of course, because God can do a whole lot more, as we know, with uh, a dozen really passionate, committed disciples than he can with a thousand churchgoers who are sort of, you know, coming along and doing their stuff and going home again, but haven't really caught the sort of discipleship bug. So it's why it's so important we're not just thinking about growing in numbers, but actually how does all of us, how do all of us grow in our own uh, Christian lives, in our discipleship? Uh, you probably know the word disciple literally means a learner. And, uh, and Jesus was rather unique in, in his teaching of his disciples because in Jesus' day, you generally went and heard a rabbi and you learnt everything you could from that rabbi and then you moved on to another rabbi to teach you something else, rather like some people hop from church to church. And uh, that wasn't Jesus' image of discipleship at all. Jesus' image was that we were to be lifelong learners that whether we were right in the early stages, just beginning to understand the Christian faith, or whether we've been Christians for decades and decades and, you know, we're reaching the end of our lives, there are always new things to learn. There are always new steps that we need to be taking in our discipleship. I rather like the idea of a learner. You, know, you never take the L plates off. And what do the L plates mean? Well, they mean that you have to have a, a driving instructor sitting beside you, actually uh, encourage you and showing you the, the next uh, direction you should go in. And, and I never quite like the image of Jesus being in the driving seat of my life. I think we're in the driving seats of our lives, but we do need to have Jesus there directing us and, uh, and leading us. We need to keep the L plates on because we are to be disciples, lifelong learners. And yet, of course, as we know, so many people, and all of us, I guess, when we look back, will acknowledge this ourselves at points, uh, do get stuck at some point along the way, 
Some people get stuck at a kind of Sunday school understanding of Christian faith. Uh, I've met people who are incredibly high-powered in their, in their professional lives, and yet whose Christian faith has never really developed beyond a very sort of uh, simple Sunday school faith. Now, there's nothing wrong with being simple, but sometimes it seems quite simplistic. And other people who, who perhaps just get stuck, whatever it is, arrested, sort of spiritual arrested development sets in at some point, and, uh, and somehow they never get beyond that point. And maybe that's because life can be jolly difficult, and uh, sometimes people, when they face real difficulties in life, they, they just sort of think, I can't, I can't grow anymore in my Christian life. I've just got to sort of hang on in there. Uh, and uh, sometimes people just get complacent and self-satisfied. Well, I, you know, church is in the right place that it should be in my life. You know, I've got the golf club, I've got church. Uh, it's all sort of, you know, that's all really quite comfortable. And uh, they never really think to go beyond And I'd like us to think, just in the the next 45 minutes or so, uh, we're going to be looking at a chunk of Matthew's Gospel. And I've chosen Matthew's Gospel because Matthew's Gospel in particular is a real manual for discipleship. It's really why Matthew wrote his Gospel. And so when you read Matthew's Gospel for the first time, if you can imagine reading Matthew's Gospel for the first time, you're reading it with one question in your mind, or you should be, how can I be a disciple of Jesus? And so you read about how the, the, the first disciples were called by Jesus, the fishermen were called to lay down their nets and to follow him, and Matthew the tax collector was called to follow him, and the others were called to follow him. Jesus then takes you onto the mount, he preaches his sermon on the mount, you then live through all the sort of healings and the teachings and the miracles, and then of course that long slow path up to the cross and beyond and into the resurrection. And then into, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus stands there on a mountain. He's only got 11 people with him at that point, and some of those doubted. So this is a very pathetic sort of mission team, you would think. But Jesus gives this small, rather pathetic mission team this enormous commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And do you see what that's doing? Right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that's saying, right, now you go back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. The first time you read it, you were asking the question, how can I be a better disciple? The second time you're asking the question, how can I make disciples? If my calling is to go into all the world and make disciples, well, what does Matthew's Gospel teach me about making disciples? And uh, it's tremendous, this kind of beginning to end, this sense and going round again, this sense of actually how can we grow more about uh, in our discipleship and in making disciples from Matthew's Gospel. And so I'd like to take us uh, just a one day in the life of Jesus. I'd like you to imagine that you're with Jesus on this particular day, it's quite an eventful day, and it takes place in Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at it in two parts, and Charlotte is going to come and read the first part, which is from verses 13 to 21, Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. 
you give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Thank you very much. It was Jackie Pullinger, the missionary to Hong Kong, who famously remarked that Christians are called to have soft hearts and hard feet. Christians are called to have soft hearts and hard feet. And I guess it's a challenge that has often come back to me as I've thought about this call to discipleship, a deeper discipleship. A soft heart speaks of compassion. How part of discipleship is growing in compassion for the world that God loves so much. And hard feet speak of courage, of being willing to go where God has called us, living a courageous kind of discipleship. Both of them seem to be fundamental to our call to be followers of Jesus. And so we have in this day in the life of Jesus, Jesus has just heard shattering news. He's heard news of uh, the death of John the Baptist. You remember it's a very gruesome death, story involving sex and politics and John the Baptist's head being cut off and uh, handed on a plate to, uh, to Herodias after Salome's dirty dancing. It's real sort of tabloid stuff. And, uh, and Jesus, of course, who was not only related to John, but uh, was, was uh, a strong... Uh, John had really pointed the way to Jesus. Jesus goes away, we're told, to a quiet place. What often happens when Jesus goes away to a quiet place is other people follow him. So he doesn't stay in that quiet place for very long. And when other people did follow him, and this, eventually this large crowd follows him, the crowd, we're told, are like sheep without a shepherd. One of the other Gospels tells us that. And why are they like sheep without a shepherd? Well, of course, because John the Baptist has just died. And these are the crowds who went down into the River Jordan when John led this amazing kind of renewal movement. And he's now died, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And what does it then go on to say? Well, Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus, you might think he would be just licking his wounds, but actually he recognises, no, his call is not simply to lick his own wounds, but actually he has compassion on the crowds. Having compassion is a really interesting idea in the Greek New Testament, because the Greek doesn't have a noun for compassion. We talk about compassion as a noun. We say that I have compassion. And because I'm a bishop, or because Debbie's a vicar, or because you're part of the counselling team or the prayer team, you can say, well, I have compassion. It's something that I've stuck up on the wall, like my, you know, degree, if you've got a degree, whatever else. It's something that I have. Actually, the New Testament doesn't let us get away with that. In the New Testament, compassioning is always a verb. It's never a noun. It's something that you do, not something you have. So if I'm compassioning, then I'm compassionate. If I'm not compassioning, I'm not compassionate. And I might be a parent, or I might be a bishop, or I might be a member of the prayer team, or whatever else. If I'm not compassioning, I'm not compassionate. And the Greek word is a rather good word. Sounds like a sneeze. It goes like this. Splachnitsumai. 
splachnitzomai. And it, it literally, it, it, it has to do with the guts. The Greek for guts is splachna. So splachnitzomai is, I really feel that in my guts. It's actually a gutsy kind of compassioning, uh, the way that we see it in the, in the Greek. And of course, it's that sort of compassioning, that active, energetic, motivating compassioning that leads Jesus to, to teach the crowds, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. To, uh, it, it's compassioning in his parables that welcomes the, the lost son home, that goes out to get the lost sheep. It's that sort of sense of that active compassioning which is reaching out to the world around. You and I know about compassioning or about compassion because every now and then we meet someone who is genuinely compassionate, who is deeply compassionate. And because they're not that common often in our lives, they kind of draw people around them like bees around a honeypot. Uh, they, they listen more than they talk. They're there for us. You sense that you, they understand something of what we're going through. Their selfless motivation seems to set them aside uh, from other people, even other Christian people. Compassioning people, of course, make the best pastors. They make the best members of a prayer team or a welcome team. They certainly make the best evangelists. They make the best parents, let's face it. Compassion is such an attractive quality in today's world that, that people really are drawn to it. And where there's genuine compassion within a church, that can be one of the most powerful evangelistic uh, aspects of that church's ministry. I sometimes wonder, what did St Paul see in Timothy, his young protégé? When you read about Timothy, he seems rather nervy type. Actually, he was a bit scary being Timothy because he was one of the leaders in the church in Ephesus. And uh, among his congregation were the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Rather difficult speaking on the gospel passage of the day when you've got Mary, Jesus' mother and his, his, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved sitting in the congregation. I'm not surprised he was a little bit nervous at points. But, but what is it that, that, why is it that Timothy stands out? Well, here's Paul's sort of tribute to Timothy in his letter to the Philippians. I have no one else like him, he says, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Paul is actually going around, moving around Christians quite a lot. But he says, even then, this man stands out because he has a genuine interest in your welfare. It's actually rarer than you think, perhaps, this genuine interest, this sense of real compassioning. So we know compassionate people. We know it when we see it. And deep down, I guess, I hope, all of us want to be compassionate people, compassioning people. But somehow, so often, life is too short and I've got a whole lot of things on my plate and, and uh, you know, I just don't have time to kind of reach out to those things that are, that are on yours. And such attitudes can exist within church communities as well. Well, you know, there's a lot that we need to do. We have to keep the show on the road. We have to keep the thing going. And, uh, and we just don't have time. We don't have the energy to reach out to those in our community who are perhaps rather lost, um, whose lives are a little bit of a mess. And sometimes churches don't seem to have time to, to think about other churches, even in different parts of the diocese, reaching out to much poorer communities than their own. And they don't think they've got time to reach out into the worldwide church and actually support churches in places where there's a tremendous need uh, all around the world. Somehow we feel we've got quite enough on our plates already. And yet St Paul, speaking both to churches and to individuals, he warns us about the dangers of compassion fatigue. 
He writes this in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Clothing ourselves sounds like a very uh, obvious image. We think, well, I get dressed in the morning, I hardly think about it. Maybe I think a little bit about what I'm going to wear. But other than that, it, it just comes instinctively. But of course, that wasn't always true. When you were much smaller... Clothing yourself actually was much more complicated, trying to get those buttons in the right place, and let alone learning how to tie up shoelaces. You know, it's actually, it was quite, it, it was something that needed to be learnt. And Paul is saying here, this is something that you need to learn. You need to clothe yourself. And I guess the question then is, well, where's the place where we do that? Where, where do we learn to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and all these other lovely qualities? Well, Paul would say, look back at this day in the life of Jesus. Where did Jesus clothe himself with compassion? He clothed himself with compassion when he went into a solitary place. And what was he doing in that solitary place? In that solitary place, he was communing with a God who is compassionate. Uh, You remember that lovely description of God in the Old Testament that speaks of him as being gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. And it says we spend time in the presence of God in that solitary place. That is the changing room in which we are clothed with compassion. It's where we see Jesus doing here, not just licking his wounds in the solitary place, but drawing fresh strength from his Father. So the moment that the crowds meet him, we're told he compassioned them. He had compassion upon them. How then do we go about choosing such a changing room? Where's the place where we change? I guess there's something about holy places. I've reflected sometimes over the years about what is a holy place? You know, if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as they say in Essex, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. (laughs) But if that's true, if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then surely God is present everywhere. So everywhere is a holy place. Well, yes, that's absolutely true. And yet there's something about that combination of God being present in a place and us coming to that place with a sense of expectation. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That sense of expectation that actually can make a place a holy place for us, which won't necessarily be a holy place for anyone else. For some people, that might be a Christian conference. You know, maybe if you come back here in two years' time, or whenever it is, Uh, this place will have some associations with you. It doesn't look like a particularly holy place. It looks a bit sort of... Well, it's great, isn't it? But it's fairly ordinary, in a sense. But, But if you've had an experience of God in this place, you will come with that sense of expectation. Some people do the same to new wine, or when they go on retreat, or whatever it is. This is a holy place. This is a place where I expect to meet with God. For some people, it isn't a specific place uh, in that way, uh, or it might be a room in their house maybe, or, or a particular walk, walking along the river. There's a, a, a walk that I did in my Twickenham days, just a lovely sort of round walk from the vicarage along a particularly nice stretch of the River Thames and through Marble Hill Park and back again. It became a holy place for me, a place where I communed with God when I had a dog. People, uh, the other fellow dog walkers could understand why I was walking and they couldn't understand it before that. In fact, one of them came up to me and said, I always used to see you walking through the park at seven o'clock in the morning, and I thought you were rather sinister. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never been called sinister before. This was, a, this was a, a very exciting to be called sinister. Anyway, 
And so I had to explain to her that, you know, just as people, she took her dog for a walk, you know, God needed to take me for a walk so that we could commune together and because he knew I needed the exercise. So, uh, so a holy place can be a, a particular kind of walk or a mountain, perhaps. You know, you climb a mountain. That's often a holy place in the scriptures, a mountain where you have a fresh encounter with, with God. And a holy place might be some practice that, that you involved with. You know, for, for some people, actually, that daily uh, quiet time, as, as it's called, you know, reading the scriptures and praying, that becomes a holy place. For some people, a daily Eucharist becomes a holy place. Wherever it is that we come and expect to meet with God. And I suppose the question then is, well, what happens if, A, we can't get there, or, or B, we need to explore something else? Actually, it becomes a bit boring where we are. It's a lovely bit in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Lucy sort of gets to the back of the wardrobe and, and there's suddenly a, it's just like the back of a wardrobe. And I think it's a kind of symbol of, of perhaps people who just get a bit stuck in a pattern. It no longer has become a holy place for them. It's just become a stuck sort of pattern. And they need to explore something else. They, they need some fresh sense of, of, of what God's doing. They need to find it perhaps in a different Christian tradition. I've known a lot of people who've loved all the sort of noise and everything else of Soul Survivor and so on, who then say, well, actually, I need something a bit more contemplative, a bit quieter, a bit more sort of disciplined in a sense. And other people who've gone for the contemplative and quiet, and they say, well, actually, I need something a bit more, kind of, a bit more exciting and exuberant and noisy. And actually, we do need different things at different stages in our lives. And if we get too stuck, this is my place, and, uh, and, and we lack that sense of expectancy coming into the presence of God in that place, then perhaps we need somewhere else. Uh, we need to be a pilgrim for a little while to, to, to sort of discern where it is that God is calling us to next. Bill Hybels, you remember, defined character as this, who you are when no one is looking. It's quite a good description of character, isn't it? It isn't just what face you put on, but who you are when no one is looking. And I think often there's a, a sense of our characters in the presence of God as, as being uh, formed so where we are when no one is looking as well. Are we taking time out into that solitary place, whatever that looks like for us, in order to nurture our own faith, in order to be clothed from on high with compassion? So easy, you know, uh, where we're sort of seeking to get things done. I'm a great list maker. Are you a list maker? I write a list at the beginning of each day. These are the things I need to get done. And I even write about five things on that I've already done so that I can feel I've sort of got off to a good start and cross them off straight away, you know. Got up, yes! <laughs> Had breakfast, yes! <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing, isn't it, if you're, sort of under, if you're made that way. Some of us aren't made that way, but, but I'm made that way. And, and sometimes we can think, well, what about prayer? You know, where does that fit in? It's not obviously productive. You know, it's not like answering half a dozen, more likely 50 or 100 emails, you know. We haven't sort of ticked it off. And yet so often it's actually that, it's the time that we spend in the, in the solitary place, what the Old Testament talks, talks about, the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, it's that time that actually forms the kind of person we are. I mean, it's not necessarily that we get more done, but actually what we do is fruitful and fulfilling and people can see the Spirit of God and experience the Spirit of God working through us in a way that if we're just there to try and tick off things from the list, it's not going to happen. So we're now moving on to the hard feet as we carry on in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And Charlotte's going to read that for us. 
Jesus walked on the water. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Thank you very much. A good few years ago, on a rather wet August day, my family and I set off to the Big Sheep, which is a holiday attraction in North Devon. Have you been to the Big Sheep, anyone? I enjoyed the Big Sheep. And there were were various kind of sheepy activities, like shearing and sheep milking and sheep racing and all the rest. But there was also an enormous uh, indoor playground with these huge great slides and ball pools and swings and all the rest. It was really very exciting. Uh, It did include uh, four of the scariest indoor slides that I've ever seen. But uh, thinking to set my children, who were then quite small, an example in courage, I went up to the easiest of them and sat on a kind of doormat, which you sat on on these slides, and I sort of uh, pushed my way off and and, and slid down and the others duly uh, followed me. Uh, I reached the bottom and thought, well, I'd better celebrate my amazing courage, so I bought a cappuccino and sat there and let the children carry on uh, with their slides. The second slide of the four started with a a sheer drop of, I guess, about um, three metres, then levelled out and ended up rather humiliatingly in uh, in, uh, a ball pool. And uh, my children were very keen that I should do this, so uh, they got me me up to the top. And... uh, I was sort of a little bit more concerned here about the sheer thing, but the pressure of seven-year-olds was building up behind me, so I thought perhaps I ought to do this. So I pushed myself off and ended up in the the ball pool, and uh, all was well. The third slide was uh, more scary. Serious doubts really started setting in. My son Joe, uh, then age six, uh, sat there at the top. He he was clearly nervous, uh, but eventually he decided, yes, he would do it. He pushed himself off the top, and... uh, Fantastic. Uh, I sat there uh, for a while. Uh, I couldn't really bring myself. This six-metre drop was just too much for me. So I sort of tried to... I got up off the the side of the thing and made my way down the stairs again, trying to look like someone who had put childish ways behind me. And uh, (laughs) really didn't think this was quite the sort of thing. Uh, 
But, uh, but by now, Joe was completely insatiable. He sort of got up to the, the fourth slide, and the fourth slide really was terrifying. And, uh, and he sat there uh, by the edge, and he just couldn't do it. And he got up again and messed about in some ball pools and then got up to the side again and sat there and couldn't do it and messed around in some ball pools. And, and eventually he said, I'm going to do it. And he got up to the top and he pushed himself off and he fell and fell and fell and fell and uh, ended up quite safely at the bottom and then decided he'd do it again and again and ended up doing it about 25 times, you know, that <laughs> as, a, as a parent. And um, there was something about the sort of idea of how do we actually grow in courage? How do we grow in, in courage? Which I think was really important because actually what Joe was doing there, much better than I was at that point, what Joe was doing was he was engaging in some proactive courage building or courage strengthening. We talk about strengthening our faith or stretching our faith. And actually Joe there was stretching his courage. And actually he's gone on to grow up to be a very courageous lad. He goes cycling off to, he decided to go visit my parents the other day and he, and he, uh, he cycled there, which is fine, except my parents down in Somerset. You know, that's the sort of thing that Joe does, you know, it's... Uh, and he was engaging in that proactive courage building. Again, we know courage when we see it. Co- courageous employees uh, in the workplace say no when they're asked to do something that's immoral or illegal or to join in a conversation which they're not happy with. Cowardly employees say, of course, you know, that's the way to the top. Courageous friends tend to challenge each other on occasions, while cowardly friends say, well, Whatever my friend's doing, I, I, I just don't want to talk about it. It's too difficult to challenge them. Courageous couples say there's a problem here and they resolve to talk through their marriages with someone and cowardly couples say we're fine and then the whole thing explodes in a thousand bitter, sharp fragments somewhere along the line. Courageous churches are always asking, well, where's God calling us to next? Cowardly churches say, well, how can we just try and keep what we've got and preserve what is already? Why rock the boat? And so we come to this point in the story, and Jesus has now fed the 5,000. He's seen them out of his compassioning. He's, he's fed, them, uh, fed them the word of God. He's fed them uh, bread and fish. He's, uh, he's healed their sick. And now we come to this next stage. And the next part of this story, and you may miss this in Matthew, but actually it starts with a real flashpoint. Because in John's Gospel, we're told that this is the point at which people start saying, let's make Jesus our king. Let's start a revolution. And, uh, and uh, because of that, uh, and you can imagine the people who are leading the let's make Jesus our king, let's start a revolution, they're probably called Peter and Andrew and Thomas and James and John. And, and the only way that we see that in this passage is here in verse 22, which says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. It's very strong language, this. He made the disciples get into the boat. Get into the boat and get into it now and set off. Because I'm not having this nonsense. Because I'm not going to be that kind of king. And then we're told again, he dismisses the crowds. We don't know quite how he did that. And he goes up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Praying isn't just something that we do at the beginning of the day. You know, at different points of the day, we need to just take ourselves a little way apart. Can't always climb a mountain, but a little bit apart. And just pray for fresh resources and fresh reserves of God's compassion and love. And so what happens next? Well, the disciples go off in the boat and it starts to get uh, dark. And the next part of the story reads like a classic kind of hammer horror movie. 
It's the dead of night, the wind is lashing against the sails, the waves are clashing on the deck, and the mast is creaking, and this ghostly presence makes its way from the distance towards the boat walking on the water. It's a ghost, they say, and they cry out in fear. But of course, this isn't a horror movie. Jesus says, take courage, it is I. And here's the key part of the story for, for, for our purposes. Peter then says this, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. It is a balmy thing to do, really, when you think about it. And yet that's what Peter says. Peter doesn't have to step out of the boat. He's actually the one who takes the initiative here. He says, if it's you, if it's your will, if you like, and if it's you, then actually tell me to do it, and I'll do it. It's proactive courage building going on here. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter, no doubt in his mind, oh goodness, now I've got to do it. Otherwise I'll really lose face. And so he steps out and he takes the first few steps, okay, and then he panics. And he starts thinking and he cries out. And we don't know Jesus' expression. It's one of the frustrations I find in the Gospel sometimes. You don't know kind of quite Jesus' expression when he says, oh ye of little faith, to Peter. I think he's got a sort of playful smile on his face at that point. I don't think he's saying, oh ye of little faith. I think he realises that Peter has just done something momentous. And yet he's got a kind of playful smile. You of little faith, you you could even more than that. There are sort of two kinds of courage, it seems to me. There is reactive courage and there is proactive courage. Reactive courage is, how do I relate and respond to the problems and difficulties that life throws my way. And life will throw difficulties and problems your way, you know that. you face some of them already. And sometimes it takes all the courage that we have simply to hang on in there. Simply to say, I'm going I'm to remain faithful in my Christian life through thick and thin, despite the fact that I'm facing real illness, that a loved one is facing illness, that I'm bereaved recently from a, a loved one, that my one of my children is going off the rails, whatever it is. We just need all our courage to hang on in there. But there are other times in life where actually things are reasonably comfortable, where actually they're reasonably settled. And those are the times, it seems to me, when we need to be saying, Lord, how can I be more courageous? How can I exercise my courage muscles? Because I don't want to just get lazy as a Christian. I don't want to get flabby as a Christian. I I want to grow in my faith. I want to be as effective as I possibly can be, as fruitful as I possibly can be in your service. There isn't anything better about being proactively courageous or reactively. The the, the woman who courageously brings up children on her own after her husband has died or maybe has deserted her is just as courageous as the person who proactively says, I'm going to go off onto the mission field. It's not as though one is less courageous than the other. They're both needed. But particularly when things are relatively straightforward for us, it seems to be a great opportunity to say, let's go in for a bit of proactive courage building. No one told Joseph to jump off that slide. No one told Peter to get out of the boat. Actually, the initiative here belongs to Peter. If it's you, tell me to come, says Peter. But Joe and Peter were engaging in this proactive uh, courage building. And we need to do the same. And so the question is, something like this, let's think about our workplace. What what would it look like if I just stepped up in courage in the workplace? Maybe to share my faith, maybe to stand out against the kind of gossip that goes on in my workplace, which I know isn't good. The backbiting, 
you know, I need to take a stand against that. It's easier to be part of the in crowd, the backbiting crowd, but actually I need to say that's not fair on occasions. Although perhaps new challenges in our relationships. You know, how can we make a step change in perhaps a, a wrong relationship that we need to renounce or a right relationship that needs strengthening and building up and encouraging? Our Christian witness, you know, what's going to take us beyond our comfort zones? We've got used to doing what we're doing. What's going to take us beyond that? One of the exciting things we were able to do in Twickenham was to church plant. And we sent out about 50 people at a time to start churches elsewhere in the neighbourhood, in, uh, in Isleworth and uh, St Margaret's and then down at Sumbly. And one of the really exciting things about doing that was people were taking right outside their comfort zones. We had one guy in the church who was 74 uh, wonderful guy, he ran an antique chandelier shop on Kensington High Street. So uh, not many people run antique chandelier shop. Anyway, Michael ran an antique, and he'd done everything at St. Stephen's Twickenham. He'd been church warden, he'd led a home group for decades, he'd done everything. He decided that God was calling him to join one of these plant teams. And so he goes off on one of these plant teams, and they start with about 50 of them, and, and suddenly they've got some young people there, and there's no one to run the young people's work, and so Michael says, well, I can run the young people's work. So this rather eccentric 74-year-old antique chandelier uh, (laughs) shop owner starts running the children's work. And it goes from strength to strength. The young people love him because he's so authentic. He's so himself. And he's so passionate about his faith. And meanwhile, he has just stopped doing the usual things that he's always done for decades. He's in a new situation. He's growing. I'm so glad to hear about all the young people wanting to learn the the books of the Bible in, in song. That's great. But, you know, what is the next stage? What's the next thing that I could be doing? Some people, you know, it's a step change in their giving. Some people have just got used to giving a certain amount to church or to outside courses. Actually, they start thinking, well, I could do a whole lot more than that. And it could have a lot more impact than just sitting around in my account. We had someone in Notting Hill who, who used to think that putting a tenor in the collection was sort of generous and suddenly realised that actually, and Notting Hill obviously has some fairly wealthy people in it, Suddenly realised he could write a cheque and put three more noughts at the end of it. It wouldn't actually affect his quality of life at all. Couldn't do that every week, he wasn't that rich. But he could do, you know, actually a step change, not just, oh, I suppose I can put it up 2% this year, but actually a step change, which is meaning that we're giving in a genuinely sacrificial way. Or perhaps going on mission, something that will really stretch us. In my last parish in Twickenham, we used to take out teams every year or two, and we went out for a while to Uganda, we went out for a while to uh, Ukraine, to Donetsk, and uh, we went out for a while after that to Delhi, to the slums of Delhi. Now, did those teams achieve a huge amount? Well, probably they didn't really, if one's honest, except people were always very glad to see us. Did that experience have a major impact on those who went? Well, wow, it really did. Those people came back changed. Because you can't go to the slums of Delhi, from Wanish or from Twickenham, and not come back changed. You can't see amazingly courageous, sacrificial Christians working in the slums of Delhi and making a huge difference to hundreds of thousands of the lives of the poorest of the poor without coming back changed. So perhaps something about going on mission, some sort of mission encounter. If you're leading a clergy conference in Uganda, you realise you can't possibly do that unless you throw yourself independence on God once again. If you're uh, working alongside the women of the slums as we did in Delhi, you realise you can't possibly do that properly unless 
you develop this new dependence on the Spirit of God. If you're building a church with your bare hands, as we were doing in Donetsk, you realise you can't do that. Certainly I can't, because I'm the least practical thing since sliced bread. But you know, you can't possibly do it unless the Spirit of God is with you. And that sort of experience is just stretching your courage, stretching your faith. If your faith has become a little bit too uncourageous, could I really encourage thinking about some of those sort of things? How can I do this? Or maybe taking on some new ministry in the life of the church or the village or the wider community. We grow in compassion primarily through entering that changing room and being clothed from on high. We grow in courage primarily through doing it. Through saying with Jesus, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And when he says, come, coming. We don't throw ourselves off the top of the temple because that isn't God calling us to do that. That's being put to the test. So we don't do that. But we say, Lord, if you're telling us me to do this, then I'll do it. And then when he says, do it, we do. How much better in God's book, I believe, to do that, even when it means we sometimes fall flat on our face, even when it means we sometimes start sinking, much better to do that than just to live life in a very comfortable way. What is it that Jesus taught in his parable of the talents? You know, the, 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 the one that Jesus really goes for is the one who buries his talent in the ground. Not the one who loses the talent, if there was one, there isn't one in this parable. Not, not someone who sort of tries something and then fails, but the one who just says, I'm going to bury it in the ground. That's the worst thing of all. Someone once said this, to try and succeed is okay. To try and fail is okay. Not to try is not okay. Not to try, just burying our talent in the ground is not okay. So let's have a few moments of quiet, shall we? And let's pray some of these these thoughts and reflections from the scriptures. And just to finish Jackie Pullinger's quotation, Christians are called to have soft hearts and hard feet. But so many Christians have hard hearts and soft feet. Heavenly Father, in your presence this morning, in this place which is holy, because the Lord is here, his spirit is with us. We pray that you would clothe us afresh with compassion. That you would take our stony hearts and transform them into hearts of flesh, hearts that beat with the love of God. Hearts that beat with your passion for the least and the last and the lost. Splachnitzumai, compassioning hearts. And Father, as we look to the future, we pray for hard feet. (coughs) 
We thank you for your word in Isaiah, speaking of how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Lord, we know that those are not conventionally beautiful feet, not pampered feet, but hard feet, willing to go out into the hard places to bring good news. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this morning who already are facing such challenges that their courage is being stretched quite far enough. We claim that promise for them, Lord, that we won't be tested beyond what we can endure. And we pray that in the midst of facing those challenges, you would be growing courage. Hardening feet. And I pray for those among us too, for whom life has perhaps become a little too safe and predictable and comfortable. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to be lifelong learners. That whatever age and stage we reach, there's still more to learn. There are still new steps to take. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see those steps. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. So that we can grow in courage. And so that we can be those who bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. In Jesus' name, Amen.